As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month as a New Year's resolution? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show today. Frank spanked. Will he soon get yanked after Man City leave Chelsea in the New Year's days? Elsewhere, we talk Eze, Andy Carroll, Spurs bursting Bielsa's bubble and their own, and New Year new us as we try being nice about Man United. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello you, it's the first Monday of this brand new year, hope you're well, and uh, here's the Totally Football Show for you, here to talk about football in it, we have Daniel Story. Hi James. Also Michael Cox, hello Michael. Hi James. And Benji Lanyardo of Pickfair. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, 2021. here's Here's a question on the Twitter from Daniel Lewis, who asked how confident in this new year is Zonal marking of retaining his quiz title uh, with Daniel Story out to exact re- revenge? Is Benji Lundiado a dark horse other contenders feared? Give us a breakdown, Michael. What's your thinking? I mean, I thought we only did the quiz because there was a like three-month period without football. So, um, right. frankly, I hope that I retain that title forever because I like the trophy. Right. I, I think there's every chance of that becoming a, 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 an annual a, a occurrence at the moment. But I, I'd like to think that whether or not society breaks down again uh, to the extent that they stop the football, we will see an Intertotally Cup in 2021. Or Daniel could actively seek another pandemic to, to try and get his you know, name on the cup. I'm not, I'm not having to look that hard at the moment, it should be mm. said. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, uh, speaking of crises... Uh, we've just witnessed uh, Chelsea Man City, which was very much billed as the, the almost the kind of the Frank Lampard referendum. Get this wrong, and those Chelsea daggers will be out in a very, very real sense for the manager. We'll, we'll, we'll get your reaction to how that game went. Not well from his point of view. Very, very shortly. Quick romp though through the scores on this opening weekend of this brand new year. Friday wins for West Ham. Benji one nil at Everton. Yes, and Man United at home to Villa, which put them joint top with Liverpool, don't at me, until the Reds play at least Monday with Saints. Saturday, Moo muzzled Bielsa's Leeds, 3-0. Palace beat the Blades, they've now picked up two points from their last 60 available. Brighton and Wolves had a 3-3 thriller at Arsenal, battered Big Sam's Baggies 4-0. Sunday, Leicester won 2-1 at Newcastle with an Andy Carroll goal of the decade, Claxon, and Man City beat Chelsea 3-1, which means City are now four points behind Liverpool and Man United with a game in hand. Leicester lie third, just a point off the leaders. Spurs and Everton level on points with Pep's side. 
Hmm. Down the other end, Arsenal now 11th, 12 points clear of the bottom three, who are Fulham, West Brom and Sheffield United. Woof. All right then. So, Sunday tea time, Man City visiting Chelsea in a game which, as mentioned, had been widely rumoured to be key for Frank Lampard's chances of hanging on to the Chelsea job long term. And it could hardly have gone worse for him. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So first to the loose ball. Trouble. And then Raheem Sterling is clear. Conte chasing him. Sterling is rapid as he got the finish at the end of it. He's drawn Mendy wide. He's still going to set it up for himself, Raheem Sterling, and he hits the post. And it's put in by De Bruyne. And it is 3-0. The problem with Chelsea this season under Lampard is that they've they've either been blunt in attack or vulnerable in defence. And the, the big question was whether Lampard was able to marry those two, two things together. And in fact, the opposite happened and they kind of both broke. Um, he played this front three, which, I mean, that is probably Chelsea fans' first choice team, I suspect. Maybe Havertz for, for Mount at a point in time. Maybe Reese James for Aspilicueta, but pretty much that is the team they've been wanting to see. And he picked this front three that it didn't seem that he expected much work out of without the ball. And then sort of looked surprised when City clicked and swamped them in midfield. And Manchester City have not been that Manchester City much this season, but they certainly were here. I thought it was really, one thing I really liked was how... Sterling kind of dipped inside from the right and just sort of drove down the centre and made N'Golo Kante look pretty slow and pretty ordinary at times. It's no exaggeration to say they could have scored six or seven. Could this have happened to any team with City in that kind of form, though? They exposed Chelsea's weaknesses really brutally. Neville said something like, you know, you don't see Azpilicueta getting done for pace on the right. Well, actually, you do quite a bit these days. You know, he's been, he's been a brilliant servant for them, but he's... Is he good enough to play right back, you know, regularly for a team with with title-winning aspirations? And they they sort of Man City really clearly made him the focus of their blitzkrieg in the first twenty minutes. And and also I don't know if it's sacrilegious to say, but you know, Daniel hinted at it. You could probably say the same for Kante. He, you know, he looked pretty overwhelmed for most of the first half, which isn't usually something you associate with Kante. And yeah, I, I think there's other weak points. You know, with James and Chilwell, they've got two of the best fullbacks in the league. But in the middle, you know, Silver and Zuma, they're really good enough. Is Kovacic good enough? Is, is you know, it, there's a, there's a lot of weaknesses there, and they were brutally exposed. Mm. City, meanwhile, were for their part absolutely brilliant. What what was behind their this return to form? This is would you say the best we've seen them since they were title winning? To be honest, I thought City started really poorly. I thought for the Mm. first 15 minutes, they struggled to get into their passing rhythm. I thought Rodri in particular looked all over the place at times, kept on giving the ball away. And it was like they just had a really, really good 20-minute spell. Um, I think they were afforded a bit of space to break into, which always helps. I quite like the fact that they played, um, you know, Pep Guardiola obviously didn't listen to Gary Neville's words because he played... uh, Sterling on the right, Foden on the left. They had lots of width. They went down the outsides. They offered that speed and directness. Um, I thought the fullbacks were good as well. Cancelo, I think, has been City's second best player of his season after De Bruyne. Zinchenko did well. Um, but yeah, like I say, I thought the first 15 minutes, I thought City were there for the taking. And um, I think sometimes when they do score goals like that, you kind of have to put your put your hands up and say they can do that to you. But for me, the, Chelsea's... The long-term concern for Chelsea from that game, for me, would be actually I didn't see any anything from them going forward. Um, I didn't really understand what they were trying to do. Um, I think it did make sense for Werner to play up front with the high line that City play, but I just think they look so much better with Giroud. Giroud's the player who you always seem to be able to bring into a side and he connects players who, who don't look like they're connecting together. So, yes, yeah, starting to look a little bit shambolic from Chelsea's point of view. You mentioned City's goal. Should we talk about those Gundogan with the opening strike and perhaps the pick of the bunch, that remarkable Kevin De Bruyne assist for Phil Foden with the extraordinary side foot sweep into the, you know, just inside the near post. Four, eh? Yeah, it looked as if Chelsea were surprised by, by Gundogan's quick finish and it was almost as if after that they sort of stood off Chelsea a little bit when the ball was around the area, which... It's pretty much the worst thing you, you can do. You have to be brave against City when they are intent on playing that quick passing around the area. Foden, I thought, was was brilliant. You know, we haven't really seen anyone take on that 
Sané mantle of getting to the byline, getting as high up the pitch as they can and then playing the ball back. And I mean, Foden's a completely different player to Leroy Sané, obviously, but he tried to do that. He did try and get down the wing and then cut inside and kind of make those runs in behind the fullback that, that De Bruyne loves to pick out. I thought he was probably the game's best player. Um, him and Gundogan, I guess, and Cancelo. But yeah, as I say, we haven't really seen that from City before. So maybe it's fair that Chelsea were surprised by that. We've kind of seen a pragmatic City, a kind of un-Guardiola-like City recently. But this was... This was back to the the verve of of seventeen eighteen onwards. Why, why do you think that was? Do they all hate Frank from his time at the Etihad or something? <laughs> uh, no, no. I, I think they, they they deliberately. I think Guardiola's probably deliberately thought we're not going to win the title with a with a leaky defence. So let's go back to that first and let's build on that. And they've done mm. that. They you know they'd conceded two goals in ten games. They brought John Stones back in. And I think sometimes it, for players as good as them, it only takes one goal for everything to click or what even one move. And suddenly everyone sort of remembers what they used to do and what worked. I was just going to echo that with John Stones and Diaz, they look really robust at the back now. And they, it, ha- it hasn't felt that way for City for quite a while. I liked after the first goal, um, whilst the players were celebrating, Diaz was the kind of guy that ran out to them saying, come on guys, eyes on the prize, back to the halfway line. And he's only been there. A few months, really. So, yeah, it was, it was it was pretty impressive to see. And John Stone, someone asked on Twitter, you know, is he now England's best centre back? And you know, he might he might just be. I think you know, as things stand, I probably have him in you know back in the lineup alongside Harry Maguire. You know, if the Euros were starting tomorrow, I think he's you know he's probably a better complement to Maguire than Mings. Yeah, he's been he's looked really good. And again, we've seen him sort of carrying the ball out from the back again, which was a bit you know reminiscent of what made him so exciting at, at Everton. Lovely stuff. Well, they'll be having a run out uh, Wednesday, Man City's defence, when they take on Man United in the League Cup semi-final. We'll talk more about that uh, clash very shortly. But Chelsea, meanwhile, what do you what do you make of this notion that Frank Lampard's position is now under threat? Uh, that they're already looking at alternatives. The name of Max Allegri's been mentioned. This this is the same manager who not long ago was presiding over a remarkable unbeaten run, a series of clean sheets. Everything seemed to be coming together and we've seen this kind of toing and froing of form with other managers in the league as well this season what's the kind of case for and against do you buy into this notion that Chelsea are actively considering a change I, I mean I don't think he's a, an elite well I don't think he's an elite manager yet I'm not sure if he will be an elite manager but to be appointed by a, a supposedly elite club you already should be in my view um, and the reality is is that he spent you know, he spent 20% of all the money that Premier League clubs spent last summer on, on new players. And they're quite a long way behind where they were even two years ago under Mauricio Sarri at this stage of the season. Mm. Um, I, I admire or I can recognise that Chelsea want this new age where they, they don't just lurch from manager to manager. But um, it's more important to get the right one if you are doing that than it, than it has previously been for Chelsea because they're, they're, you know, their process was always, if a manager doesn't work out, we move him on and we get someone who will and, and that brought them success. We have to remember that Chelsea have probably had the best decade of any Premier League club. You know, two titles, a Champions League, Europa League. I don't think any other club would swap that. So it was working. Which means if you then change shift and go, right, we want a you know, we want a project manager, we want someone from within, it kinda needs to work out and, and it kinda isn't. Daniel votes chop. What do you say, Benji? I mean, I think the you know the rational thing to do would be to give him time. I think they mentioned in commentary that that Chelsea are are prone to giving up too quickly, not just with managers but also with players. You know, they they let Salah slip through their through their hands. Same with De Bruyne. Same with Lukaku. And I think Lampard's saying that it takes a while for these things to click. I mean, he's absolutely right. That do, that doesn't mean that they're not going to get rid of him because Chelsea don't don't necessarily always act rationally. But I also do wonder whether the you know these forward players whether he actually did choose them or, or whether they were sort of thrown at him. It reminds me of the um, the Jurassic Park quote. You know, they were sort of so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think whether they should. And they just scooped up Havertz and, and, and Werner and Ziyech. I'm, I'm not convinced that they were chosen because they suited a style and philosophy that Lampard wanted to play. I think they were probably just thrown at him. So I think he's got to be given time. Michael. I don't really understand anything about the situation. I mean, I still don't really understand why he was appointed on the back of like a one OK season in the championship. And I don't really understand why, you know, if you're going to appoint him, then I mean, they're only three points off fourth place. I know some sides have a game in hand, 
I just don't know why you would appoint Lampard and then expect him to be an overnight success. I think if you take that kind of risk, there are always going to be some some dips in performance. And I mean, I haven't seen that much from Lampard to make me think he's going to be a top manager, but I do think it's quite tough to accommodate five or six new signings in your first 11 when it's a season where you don't get that much time on the training ground. So, yeah, I think he was lucky to get the job in the first place, but I do feel slightly sorry for him um, that he's being asked to create a a real title challenging side with this group in in the first season. I think having made all those signings, it was probably going to be next year where they challenge for the title. Um, And I think really his performance should be judged on whether there is a long-term plan and building towards that, I think the answer to that question based upon the, the last few weeks is, is probably no. I don't really see what he's aiming for. All right, because you don't see any anything resembling progress. What about the fact that just last week after the 3-0, sorry, 3-1 defeat to Arsenal, he was accusing his players of basically being, being lazy. Do you think that uh, that's had any impact on the performance this Sunday? No. I mean, the, 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 there is a report from, from The Athletic that um, says that his job is in some doubt and that report includes the suggestion that, that some players are maybe not seeing eye to eye with him. Um, I mean, that's one of the problems he's got is that's natural at Chelsea now because because of the turnover of players, there should be a really high competition for places and that, that looks that way when the team's doing well. When the team's doing well, players are always pushing to get in. When the team's not doing well, anyone that's not in the team thinks, well, hang on a minute, how? why am I not in the team? Why has my place automatically been taken by a new signing when, quite frankly, I feel like I'm still doing my job better than he is? Mm. I mean, I, I don't know whether it had any impact on this performance, but I did think after the Arsenal game, that's probably one too many times you've you've gone for that. Frank, in terms of, you know, almost throwing the players under the bus. Because I think it can happen in one or two games in a season. The players might not be in the right frame of mind. But when he keeps on saying it after they've lost games, you have to wonder whether there's a a common theme. And of course, you have to take into account the fact that it's his job to prepare the players psychologically. I just don't think you can keep on saying the players weren't ready. You know, that says something about how they're being managed. Well, they were up against a particularly vintage side on this occasion. So we'll see how they fare when they take on, is it Morecambe and the FA Cup next weekend? City, of course, have got cup action of their own Wednesday in the Carabao Cup semi at Old Trafford against Man United. Uh, do you see them retaining this intensity and verve for that clash? Will it be better than the last derby? I mean, it can't be worse. but um, And it's a, a knockout game which should aid the the aesthetic fair but I suspect they'll be pretty shattered I mean they're without a, a group of players after two more COVID t- positive COVID tests on on Saturday and it, you know it's all very well saying he'll rest players but there aren't an awful lot to rest I guess players like Mares and Aguero might start but which is you know it's no bad thing they're both very good players but you get the feeling that the EFL Cup is very much everyone's second or third on everyone's list in the next couple of weeks. I see. All right. Well, we'll we'll discuss Man United's uh, victory this weekend very shortly. The other game on Sunday, meantime, saw Newcastle take on Leicester, uh, featuring a first half so bad, I spent much of it pondering whether Sean Longstaff is what the ancients called circumcision. Uh, The second half, though, came alive, uh, courtesy of some truly lovely goals. Madison, the Tillerman strike, and then... Andy Carroll, who came on for Newcastle with them 2-0 two, two down. And the commentator says it's been over 10 years, you know, since he's, he's scored for Newcastle. And you just knew that that's what was going to happen. It was like che- Chekhov's stat. If you you say that. I suspect yeah. commentators have said it's been over eight and it's been over nine. And it's, you know, he hasn't, <laughs> scored, a, he hasn't scored a Premier League goal since April 2018 for anyone. So, um, yeah, but he did strike it nicely. It was, it was a nice goal, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was... It was... <laughs> It was Newcastle attacking when they were 2-0 down. That was the frustrating thing again. Um, they've really put Leicester under pressure with, with Carroll on, um, doing what he does. Um, but yeah, it's just too little too late again. I, I just wanted to say that I thought uh, Wesley Fofana, I'm loving watching him play. He's frighteningly good. And he's now made more interceptions than any other defender in the league, despite not playing in five of Leicester's games so far this season. Uh, and, and it's... I think that's the thing that's so impressive about him. He reads the game so well, which is it's especially impressive because I've always thought of anticipation being an attribute that comes with experience. And he's only 20 years old. So, yeah, really, really exciting player. Well, Newcastle lies 6th and 15th. I beg their pardon. Eight points off the bottom three. Leicester 
as previously mentioned, moved back up to third. Up next, let's move on to Saturday's footballing affair featuring that highly intriguing tactical clash at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium as Jose Mourinho's Grinch ballers came up against Bielsa's Gaucho Marksman. Welcome back to the ground. Tickets, please. Thank you, madam. And let's see, sir. Oh, sorry, no, you're in tier three. No, I ain't. We're in tier two. We're allowed to be here. You can't take away my freedom. Tier three of the stadium over there. Donut. What? Uh, by the donut stand. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy Power's offers are at full capacity. If one leg of your four plus four acre lets you down, get a free bet on all football and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Min odds one to five on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. It's in plus begambleaware.org. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Spurs 3 leads nil this Saturday in North London. That's the first time anyone stopped Leeds scoring on the road this season. How did Tottenham Hotspur do it? Michael Cox. Um, I don't think it was anything to do with good defending. I think they got quite lucky in the first half, to be honest. Leeds had a lot of very promising attacks. I thought they did really well down the flanks. Aliovsky down the left was always creating three against two situations. And a few times they crossed for Bamford, who couldn't quite connect, or midfield runners. I think Rodrigo was getting into the box as well. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't really read too much into, their, into Tottenham's clean sheet in that sense. Um, I think a few of Tottenham's clean sheets this year have been... Uh, yeah, a little bit fortunate. But they were, I mean, Spurs did the job going the other way. I think it was a good example of what this season's all about, really, from Spurs' perspective and from the Premier League perspective. From Spurs' perspective, Kane teeing up Son. We probably don't need to say anything more about that. And for the first goal, I, I just... It probably was a penalty, but it was so much Bergwijn winning it rather than the defender doing that much wrong. And it just feels to me like... I mean, the, the number of penalties has gone up significantly in the league this year. And it does feel like the game has shifted a bit, whether because of the VAR, VAR era, whether referees are becoming slightly strict as a result of the VAR era. But so many penalties you see now, and I just feel a bit sorry for the defender. They, they almost just have to stand back and let the attackers do their thing. Second half, it was a, yeah, the game was dead. But uh, I thought Leeds were a little bit unfortunate to be 2-0 down, personally. Really? OK, because a lot of people have hailed this as, as Mourinho... His tactical masterclass against Bielsa, etc., and, and and so on. For a start, they scored and didn't sit back this time. They continued having shots and things. Yeah, I mean, they but they you, we have to remember that. I mean, Leeds's back four was converted winger at fullback, converted winger at fullback, fullback at centre back, and fourth choice centre back who can also play in midfield. It's not. It's very hard to and their passing was poor. Okay, quite often to create Spurs' chances. Um, and sometimes I think you just have to say, well, they have the the informed strike partnership probably in the world at the moment, and we have a backup defence. And, and unless we take all of our chances or a high proportion of our chances, we're probably going to lose. And they don't they don't help themselves though, because they, they play this sort of four one, four one formation, which puts a huge amount of responsibility on Calvin Phillips as the defensive midfielder, which and he's not a really defensive, defensive midfielder. The sort of clues in his nickname, he's thought of as the, the Yorkshire Pirlo. So you, you've got this amazing marauding team with a single defensive midfielder who, whose strength isn't really in defending. And, and you, know, uh, you know, Spurs exposed it, uh, you know, much like United did a few weeks ago. It's quite a, it's an Achilles heel, really. And the same with Phillips, there's a few times because they kept on dropping, like Kane would drop into the number 10 position and Son was there and, and Bergwijn was there at times and Ndombele was there at times. When Phillips was up against Kane, I honestly felt like he was slightly pulling his punches as a fringe England player up against the England captain six months before a tournament. I do wonder 
if like you know how hard do I really want to go in on Harry Kane as Calvin Phillips at this at this moment in time? I wonder if we'll see more of that from other you know English defenders. I'm one hundred percent distancing myself from those views. <laughs> Uh, Harry Kane and Sun Hyung Min, of which no more needs to be said, as, as Michael points out. But I'm just going to mention anyway the fact that they're now level with Chris Sutton and Alan Shearer, having combined for 13 goals in the Premier League this season. That means that they're already level with Sutton and Shearer's record and are almost, I mean, it would be madness if they didn't now break it. What makes them so good as a partnership? What sets them apart from all the other great tandems we've had in the past, whether York and Cole or Sutton and Shearer or... Um, I think I think a, a, a percentage or a part of it is the fact that that Mourinho has has told them that's what they can do. That, I mean, I, Son does Harry back and uh, Kane drops deep, but they are an absolute partnership. You look at Tottenham's, you know, look at the players, and I think if you, you add together the thirteen hundred and something minutes of Bale and Bergvine and Mora and Vinicius, I think they've had eight shots on target together, all combined, and Kane and Son have had you know 20 odd each so it it's just so obviously made a team made for them and that helps i mean they're both brilliant players of course but i think the style and the way that Mourinho instructs the players is all geared towards them it's Mourinho realizing that apart from those two he's got a relatively average team i, I think it's it's similar with man united they they are a relatively average team with two world class players and you know maybe 2.5 with pogba so i, I think that that realizing that you've got two absolute diamonds and quite a bit of rough around them it's kind of it kind of has to be their strategy to 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 build around those two Mm. is there anything in the fact that two of the bigger or more impressive wins this weekend were both courtesy of sides that had had a rest because their previous fixture had been called off for as amazon prime but at covid19 reasons Uh, spurs had had the fulham game called off and for man city was uh, everson prior to their trip to chelsea but a little bit extra in the legs at this, you know, tiring time of the of year. Didn't work for Everton against us, against West Ham. Well, but they were facing West Ham. But good point, Benji. <laughs> very, very good point. In meantime, Spurs players getting in trouble, Los Celso, Lamella and Reguillon at a Christmas party. They would have got away with it if they hadn't <laughs> taken pictures of themselves doing it, which is, why would you do that? Um, mm. Paul Mourinho had given Reguillon a Portuguese piglet which, as he explained, was an amazing gift for Portuguese and Spanish people. I was told he would spend Christmas on his own. He was not alone, as you could see. There's a little bitterness there, and I think it's understandable <laughs> from Mourinho. I'm not going to call out Premier League footballers for... Can I call them out for it? Yeah, Daniel, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just, it's just, just to say that everyone has found it hard at the moment, and... Mm. Um, I un- my issue with it, or my sadness from it, stems from the fact that it, it gives ammunition to the theory that all footballers are highly paid millionaires who, if you pardon the pun, live in their own bubble and have no concept of normal rules. Because it's not just the the dimness of doing it, but the dimness of posting it on social media and not kind of making that connection that they're going to get into trouble and also I think that the FA if you can get banned for posting things on social media I think that you should be able to get banned for breaking Covid rules if it's proven Mm. I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be it it, it doesn't just impact them it it actually impacts the sanctity of the league if games are then called off and we struggle to fit them in and I think that also in a kind of post Marcus Rashford world you know we're seeing that footballers can be incredible examples and here are a bunch of idiots just doing the complete opposite I think the the, the other the other thing that annoys me about it alongside just the kind of you know who are you know we've all had crap Christmases why do they get to have a nice barbecue or whatever the other thing is that um you know, I don't work in football. I'm a, I'm a fan. It's and it's football is a really important distraction for lots of people. You know, to much of the rubbish that has happened this year, and to some extent, however crude it sounds, like it is literally footballers' jobs to entertain us. We pay our money to Sky and Amazon and, and BT, and, and in return, we want some football. So if games get called off because of players being irresponsible, they're taking something away literally from the fans. And I, obviously, if the risk profile of a game increases, you have to call it off. Of course you have to. But it's not too much to ask players to be as careful as possible, you know, and, and, and they kind of flaunt it knowingly. Yeah, that's, that's for you, all you Premier League footballers listening to this show. I'm just interested in the piglet thing because it makes me reconsider 
the Barcelona fans chucking a pig's head at Luis Figo all those years ago. Maybe that was just a very nice free Christmas gift <laughs> he was giving him, and we completely misunderstood it for 20 years. Yeah, I, I don't think the cultural nuance is exactly with, with that, Michael. But, but yes, it is a fascinating little nugget within that story. Um, it, I thought you were going to say it re- made you reconsider your Christmas gift list because <laughs> maybe no, you've been... No. no, okay. Well, next up, Spurs will also be featuring a League Cup semi-final action uh, Tuesday. They're up against Brentford, who themselves had a rest this weekend because their game with Bristol City in the Championship got postponed. To what extent uh, does uh, Spurs' performance against Leeds indicate what they could do to Brentford and how big a favourite they might be to make it to the final? Well, they are they are favourites to make it to the final and, and should be. I think that this run of games that Tottenham have now actually always always looked quite helpful for Mourinho coming after those damaging draws because it's a it's a reasonably gentle run and we've seen from the nature of the league that if if they win three in the bounce in the league and make it through in the FA Cup which they will I think and make it to the League Cup final which they will I think then suddenly everything looks a bit more rosy you know it looks pretty rosy for Arsenal now when we were, they were a crisis club three weeks ago so yeah I, I think they will will rebound has the whole brand of Crisis Club been essentially devalued? Do you think by this campaign yeah. so far? Daniel? It makes it it makes it ridiculous. I mean, it's the smallest violins, but it makes it quite hard to write a weekly column about things that have happened in the Premier League, and right. then do podcasts about things that have happened in the Premier League. Because, yeah, it, it is. I mean, the Arsenal example is, which we'll probably talk about, but is is crazy, really. Let's talk about now, them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they they are now three points behind Chelsea, who were top of the league four yeah, weeks Yeah, but ago. Chelsea are in crisis themselves, so Arsenal are three exactly. points below them. But yeah. it is true, they've won three games in a row, one of which was against the Chelsea team, who were clearly in free fall at the hands of the biggest boob to ever sit on a bench. Uh, then they only narrowly beat Haplets Brighton, and this time they put admittedly four goals past a West Brom team who are, I think I'm right in saying, the easiest team to score against in Premier League history. Is that right? Don't the figures say that? Back me up here, Daniel. I don't know how... Well, they've got, they're on for having the worst defence in, in a long, long time in the Premier League. Uh, mm. Cardiff City conceded 38 a couple of years ago. West Brom were on But that was 50. in a whole season. Yeah, West Brom were on for 50, though. On for 50 goals conceded at, just at home, which is Oof. quite impressive. All right. Okay, and now once again, this game featured some really, really lovely goals. I don't know which your favourite was. It was Kieran Tierney's cutting in and then curling it. And then that wonderful um, Smith Rowe to Saka uh, business. Uh, Michael, I know you posted a, a, what you described as a simple tactical analysis of what has happened with Arsenal. But just to kind of flesh that out for uh, any listener who might 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 be curious about what's turned around beyond the fact that the fixtures have been easier what what has changed for Arsenal well I thought throughout November and and the start of December they were really quite poor with the exception of Saka and Tierney who were constantly combining down the left and and looking really dangerous and one of the yeah like I say a pretty simple analysis is that now they have one on the left and one on the right and they seem to have spread the attacking threat out I mean every goal really stemmed from one of those two carrying the ball down the flank, despite the fact they're playing in different roles. One as a fullback, one as a winger. I mean, there are other factors. I think Lacazette's link play has been good. And of course, he scored two goals here. Smith Rowe, I think, has done has done well as the number 10. But really, more than anything, I just think the fact they've had a presence there, someone there who's just spreading the play to the flanks and keeping things going, has been more important than, than the actual identity of that player. But yeah, that, I mean, those two, Tierney and Saka, I think for me would be in the conversation for for the best team we've seen in the Premier League so far and absolutely no other Arsenal player would get anywhere near that conversation. So, yeah, for me, they've had two players carrying them in, in recent weeks and this was a good example of that. And Alexander Lacazette, who suddenly picked up goal-scoring form as well, is is that because everything else is working or is he just kind of... Is his acting as motivation for everybody else as well? Yeah, he's had, he's had chances. I mean, I think he's done a few good things um, in deeper positions I think there was a there's one of the Europa League games Arsenal played where he actually played as a number ten and was getting on the ball a lot more and just seemed more involved and a bit more lively and maybe that has almost helped him since he's gone back to playing up front because like I say his link play has been better. I think as well in midfield, 
they've really asked the, the two holders, whether it's been Xhaka and Elneny or Xhaka and Ceballos, to just sit there and protect the defence. And I think that's been improved because Arsenal haven't really been opened up. They haven't been vulnerable to counter-attacks. Um, and the two fullbacks have got a licence to go forward and join the attack. Um, I would say I don't think Arsenal were quite as bad as their bad run made them look. And I don't think they've been quite as good as three wins in a row has made them look. But there has been an improvement, unquestionably. If you're Frank Lampard, could you not point at this, at at what Arteta was going through not long ago, himself at the hands of an utter mauling at home to Man City and say, look how quickly things can can turn around? Is there any kind of... is, Is that comparison in any way valid? Yes, apart from, I think, the fact that whatever Lampard says about title challenges and I I completely take Michael's point that next season is probably one that that team peaks or kicks into gear Um, he cannot pretend that the the ambitions of those two clubs whether they were stated publicly or privately were not different Um, I think it was always clear that Mikel Arteta was was in a rebuilding job simply if you look at the you know the money spent over the summer Um, and not just the money but the number of different players brought in Uh, I I don't think they are similar clubs at the moment, albeit in now in fairly similar league positions. Mm. Hands up, who was surprised at Big Sam post-game blaming Brexit for the Baggies' woes? I missed this. Sorry, what did he say? So he said that they uh, needed reinforcements and he had three uh, players lined up, he said. But because of the new regulations, he said it's not the pandemic that's causing the problems, it's these new regulations. Aren't the new regulations banning you signing under-18 foreign players? Perhaps that's what he had lined up. It's not your archetypal Big Sam signing, is it? Well, they're going to need something, sitting as they do in 19th place. Not quite as bad, of course, as Sheffield United, who are 12 points off safety. Fulham, who are on the brink. They're only three points behind Brighton, but they have two games in hand on the Seagulls. Uh, Sheffield United beaten 2-0 this weekend away at Crystal Palace. First off, the Izzy goal. Eze, bit of space ahead of him. Turns nicely. Eze now drifting forward. Oh, drifting past another Eze. Can he go all the way here? Would be a classic goal! It is a classic goal! Magnificent, no? Or just truly astonishing absence of defending? What's your take? I loved it. I thought it was a brilliant goal. I mean, he beat two defenders. The back four backed off a bit, as I think you're always going to do in that situation. But yeah, I love any goal that is scored, you know, caressed into the goal from long range. There was another one recently, Bertrand Traore scored for Villa. I just couldn't get my head around how cool his finish was. And yeah, I mean, it, he's looked fantastic since he joined. He's he's had a couple of games where things haven't quite come off, but he's just so exciting and so direct and, you know, has the presence of mind to be cool in those kind of critical situations. I've, I've really enjoyed watching him so far this season. Sam asks, how awkward is it going to be at Palace when Eze gets Wilfred Zaha's dream move? <laughs> yeah. yeah he's, he's, there are certain players that you watch in the Championship and you you know they surprise you when they hit it big in the Premier League. You know, As a Forest fan, Mikel Antonio is the obvious example of that. But with Eze, you know, as soon as you watched him, it, it was so obvious that he was kind of made for the Premier League and... And, you know, that that is a jokey question, but it's fair to ask because he already looks big, you know, a big fish at Palace. And, you know, two years down the line, you suspect that the league, you know, any club in the league is his oyster because he is, he's so calm on the ball. And I think he's one of the reasons that Saha's actually having quite a good season because you've got this kind of double threat there now, whereas it used to be just pretty much Zaha plus 10. I, we, I think he's mentioning Traore, I think, Eze is to, to Zaha what Troyore to some extent is to Grealish he kind of he occupies players so there's slightly more space for, for other creative players on, on, on the pitch and he's just yeah Eze is so languid he's, he's lovely to watch Michael you were talking about that goal that Troyore goal um, and I was, I was screaming at my phone because it really reminded me of do you remember the Adel Tarab goal I think, yeah, it was his, yeah, yeah. I think it was his first goal for QPR in the Premier League. Same sort of thing, just kind of passed it, this time with the outside of his foot into the, into the net. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's a really good shout. I'd forgotten about that goal, but yeah, spot on. Equally, as much as Eze's looking tremendously relaxed, his partner up front, uh, Wilfred Zaha, looking anything but. Angriest man in the Premier League by some distance. And it's the second time in recent games that he's raised his hands to an opponent's face and gotten away with it, that surely can't continue. Uh, no, and someone will have a, a quiet word. But I think 
to be honest, I think I don't think Roy Hodgson will mind too much. I think Zaha's one of those players that produces his best when he feels like either when he feels angry or aggrieved with something or when he feels, you know, fully motivated to to do it. He he tweeted something after the game that he he kind of later deleted, didn't he? So about you know, if you you can have a go at me, but I'm the one doing it, that sort of thing. And yeah, he he does seem to have got a bit of kind of edge to him, and I think that's a positive thing, unless it ends up in him raising his hands and actually getting sent off for it. Right, you want that passion, excellent. Mm-hmm. So uh, also down in the bottom three, we mentioned Fulham, who didn't get to play this time round. As a result, they do have uh, games in hand. And they are only three points behind Brighton, who've played two more games than them. In fact, Brighton, who had a 3-3 draw with Wolves, which uh, was a, a vastly more entertaining game than I was anticipating, uh, I must admit, uh, right up to the finish with both teams having big chances at the end. Uh, Wolves almost snatching a winner late on. Brighton denied one by uh, a slightly premature bit of whistleblowing by the referee. It was a tremendous second half, though, from the Seagulls, particularly for a, a team in the predicament they're in, you know, to, to come roaring back from 3-1 down. Anyone got any Brighton love? No? No, they, they frustrate me. They're the opposite for me. They frustrate me because there's so much promise there and and typically so little end result. I know they hold themselves back into the game here, but having scored twice against Wolves in the second half, you sort of think, well, where is that? when it sort of matters. I feel like they're sort of sleepwalking into a relegation fight because I think Fulham look better than them at the moment, which is a shame. Yeah, Fulham are a good side. I just, with this game, by the way, I, I, first of all, hugely entertaining. And also, um, Dama Traore against Dan Byrne felt like a sort of science experiment. <laughs> like, what, what, what happens if, if a two-foot-tall defender comes up against a two-foot-wide winger? Um, and, and unfortunately, poor old Dan Byrne, Adama had him on toast for most of the game. The game. You know, left him in a bit of a spin. He, con- he conceded the penalty. Then he scored no goal. And then Dan Byrne was subbed off in the second half. So, yeah, felt sorry for him. But actually, with Traore, he has been pretty, pretty average so far this year and was doing nothing in this game before he won that pen. And then it was like he just got switched on. It was like the Adama Traore of... Of you know the tail end of last season, so yeah, hopefully mm. we see more of that going forward. The other the other thing I've got to say, I'm, I'm sorry if this is a mean thing to say about an 18 year old, but <laughs> Fabio Sil- Fabio Silva is just he's not it. Like he he cost them 35 million pounds. He'd only played 12 games, and you know there's clearly been some real you know transfer hits in that squad. With Pedro Neto, I think is a great example, really good player, Podence too, but I think Silva may well end up be, being a miss. For- People like Daniel, who were in the loop, in the know, may regard this as one of those transfers that was done for not purely footballing reasons. Is that would that be a fair? Well, I I, I think even Wolves would accept that they have a, a fairly warm relationship with Uncle George Mendes, um, and he is a Mendes client. But mm. the the interesting thing for me in January is whether Diego Costa might become the the answer to replace Raúl Jiménez if if. Uh, Jimenez is going to be out for as long as you know is potentially reported, given the the seriousness of his injury. Um, it should be said we are, the Diego Costa that left the Premier League is probably not the same one that's coming back because it's, there's more tantrums and less fewer goals. But um, I think we'd still all officially like to see it. I mean, if uh, if Benji's being rude about an 18 year old, I'll, I'll be rude about a 19 year old because Fabio Silva's uh, replacement, Otisawi, that header late on. <laughs> I mean, how do you get the ball that high from that cross? I just, I couldn't work out how he got it so badly wrong. One thing I'd say about that as well is that I thought it was really crap of his teammates to just leave him in the goal. So he, he the, the, the cross, the cross went in. He sh- it really should have scored the winner. He skies it. He ends up in the back of the net. The ref blows the final whistle, and he's just sitting there for like a few minutes. Like you surely, like you know, Connor Cody or someone, just run up and put your arm around him. I felt really sorry for him. It looked mm. like it was like the opposite of that uh, that amazing Ian Dowie own goal, where he scores <laughs> and it looks like he deliberately scores an own goal, and it looks like it, it, I mean, he look you couldn't miss that header by more than he managed to miss it from from where he was. It was yeah, it was impressive. And Otisawi mm. rhymes with Ian Dowie as well. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> is this a conspiracy theory? At the other end of the team spirit spectrum, uh, wonderful scenes at the final whistle at Old Trafford as a bye was embraced. And kind of pretty much jumped on by all his teammates after a vital a bit of defensive action at the end of Man United's win over Villa. 
Uh, we'll get onto that game and the rest of the Premier League's weekend action next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Man United, who Wednesday will be facing Man City in the Carabao Cup semi-final. On Friday, 2-1 winners of Aston Villa taking their unbeaten run in the Premier League to 10 games. Ooh. Steve C says, Man United are six points up on the Uncle Jeff coefficient. Is the improvement going to put enough pressure on Liverpool? Question mark. Guys, is it time to finally come out and say it? Man United are in the title hunt. They are contenders. Ollie's doing a good job. Daniel. Yes, yeah, he, he is. They are in great form. Um, I am... Um, I can't pretend to completely change my opinion and think he's a brilliant manager because I still think it's the best club for him, but he's not the best manager for them, but they are in in good form. They also have a phenomenal squad of players and in Bruno Fernandes have an absolute game changer. Probably the the game changer of of this Premier League season so far, I think. Um, It isn't just the the penalties, although there are, as Michael said, there, there do seem to be a lot more penalties this season and he's very good at taking them, but... Just the way he dictates the tempo high up the pitch, you know, we, you see quite often see midfielders at, at big clubs dictating the tempo forty yards from their own goal, but Fernandez seems to have the poise to do it forty yards from the opposition goal, where he has enough time to completely dictate the tempo, which is, yeah, is making them click and they look really good. Um, so this will obviously provoke them slipping down the table. <laughs> well, you never know. They brought in Fernandes around this time last year and there's as usual a lot of chatter about them making a similarly high profile move this January previously they've been after Jaden Sancho now talk of Erling Haaland making a move to Old Trafford is it realistic I don't know it's not like they have a terrific record at landing their transfer targets but but in the meantime the business of the penalties there have been a lot of penalties and nowhere more so almost than uh, for Man United. Duncan Alexander tweeting during the game, Man United have won a penalty, now autocompletes when I type M. Is that unfair? <laughs> Is it actually a natural function of the way that they play and, and, and attack teams? Um, I think to a certain extent it is. They've got very quick players, very tricky players. They also do have players who who appear to win penalties, you know, very deliberately. I thought that's what happened... In this game, I, I didn't really understand. I don't really understand how VAR works if that's not overturned. So this was the controversial moment in which Douglas Louise was uh, conceded a penalty when Pogba went down. Now, Pogba clearly tripped himself, but I think the contention was that it was Louise's leg that pushed Pogba's foot across uh, you know, into contact with his other leg in much the same way that you might, you know, as somebody else has pointed out, on your way to school, you might kind of just nip the heel of a of a classmate and send them sprawling which is a, a fair analogy you know what do you think penalty or not daniel uh one of those infuriating ones with var that if it hadn't been given wouldn't have been a penalty if it has been given is a penalty which to me undermines the point of really bothering okay. the whole exercise but man united are, are are about more than just penalties though yes yes they are um, I thought I actually thought I don't think this was a great example of it because I thought Aston Villa were absolutely brilliant. I thought they, um, you know, there's been a bit of a, a reaction recently to the praise that Leeds have got for um, playing open football and you know even being praised when they lose. But Villa deserve great credit here, even though they lost because um, they're an absolutely brilliant team to watch. They really are. I think I think there's only Leeds at the moment who, if you said pick a, g- a game as a neutral and you think it's going to be good in the Premier League, I would pick Leeds game and I would pick a Villa game. I completely agree. They're the two teams that I look f- to see who they're playing each weekend after West Ham. I was going to say that um, I, I think, you know, to challenge in the top half of the Premier League, you, you have to have at least one top draw fullback. And I think Villa have got that in Matty Cash. And I sort of assume that, Daniel, you're already a card-carrying member of the Matty Cash fan club. But 
I think the, the the thing I enjoy most about him is he's a real all rounder. I think the thing the most eye catching stuff he does is going forward, and he's great. He's got a fantastic delivery, um, and he's got a couple of assists this year. He's, but he's also he after Fafana has made the second most interceptions for any defender. Um, and I think he's in the top five for tackles too. So yeah, he's, I really enjoy watching Matty Cash. And I thought, yeah, second game in a row, Man United were the worst team and won. But uh, you know, and as you know, that is how how you win the title, isn't it? Brilliant. They were the worst team and won second game in a row. Outstanding. They're going to be <laughs> taking on Liverpool on the seventeenth of January. That's so exciting. Yeah, we and it also feels nice that because of the the League Cup and the FA Cup, we get a real kind of lead into that game, a real build up to it because. Yeah, to to reiterate the the credit for Solskjaer I said earlier, that now does have a, a feeling of a of a title battle, which is remarkable. When they were, you know, we have to remember that they they went seven games at home without a win, and now suddenly they're they're back in the title race. Remarkable, isn't it? And they also are in that Carabao Cup semi final with City, who we mentioned are in a sparkling form this Sunday afternoon. What do you think on Wednesday? These are the teams that have won the last five editions of the Carabao Cup. Four of them, four City, admittedly, won four years ago for Man United. Who do you want to see in the final? Is it Spurs and Jose Mourinho taking on Man United? Is that what you're after, Michael? Uh, no, I'd prefer to see Brentford, Brentford. against... Uh, I'm not fussed with the other game. I'll, I'll just take Brentford in the final for the novelty of it. Brilliant. All right. West Ham won't be featuring in either of those semi-finals, but they will feature in our next bit of chat, Benji. Yes, it's hammer time. Yes, David Moyes went to Goodison and got a win. First win in five for the Hammers. This despite the fact it was their third game in six days. Woof. Yeah, it was the second awful game that we were part of in, in, in four days or whatever it was. After that, nil-nil away at Southampton. Uh, which you're completely forgiven for, for forgetting. In fact, generally, I think the most interesting thing that came out of the Southampton game was discovering that Craig Dawson plays for West Ham now. Um, and he actually, he played quite well. How did you discover that? He turned up in the starting eleven, um, much to the sort of shock of, I think, you know, West Ham fans, let alone football fans. Did you think it was a kind of car power moment? Well, exactly. Yeah, and he, he kept his he kept his place for the for the game against Everton. Um, but yeah, it completely st- it stank this game. And I think that in in games like this, if you want to get anything from them, you need to get some of the fundamentals right, and you need to be a bit lucky. And we and we got both of those things. And I guess in terms of fundamentals, Moyes has made us into a pretty robust defensive unit. And I, and I'd argue that um, Angelo Ogbonna is currently one of the best performing centre backs in the entire league. The second clean sheet in a row. He's been playing up against Ings and then Calvert Lewin, and given neither of them a sniff. And yeah, I think, you know, a player of the year so far, and it makes sense. He's, he's 32 now, and Italian defenders often seem to, to come into their prime in, in, in their early 30s. And yeah, no, he's a real, a real talisman. And at the other end, you've got Suchek, who's just completely lethal. Absolutely. Top scorer in the Premier League for West Ham this season with five goals. Absolutely remarkable. Everton, who had been on a four-game winning streak, what happened to them here? Is this just this kind of flip-flopping that we're seeing from almost everybody this season? Yeah, I, I've, I've, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've, I've written this in Winners and Losers, but um, they remind me of myself in that just as you start to believe in that, that they're all pointing <laughs> in the right direction, something happens that completely lets you down and you go back to the start again. I see. Was it any coincidence the fact that this was their first game at Goodison without a crowd? Might that have been contributing um... to the lack of motivation or...? I don't think it's a good enough excuse. I mean, right. I, th- I think the crowds should help teams, but I don't think it's a good enough excuse. OK, well, a good win anyway for West Ham, who are 10th, Benji, in the table. But you're not that far off. You mentioned Villa. Villa are only three points off the top four with a game in hand. West Ham, ooh, they've played extra games, but they're, they're level on points with Villa. Crikey. Yeah, just a quick shout-out for, for David Moyes again. I, I, in the, the first of our three games this, mm. over the Christmas period, we played Brighton, and we played a really bizarrely defensive starting eleven. And, you know, he got a real kicking for it on social media. The first time, I think, the fans have really kind of not understood what he's up to. Um, and he came out after the game and said, yeah, got that completely wrong. Sorry about that. It was way too defensive. And I, I don't know whether it's just I'm sort of mentally cross-referencing other, you know, leaders in the pub, public sphere, but it's it's quite nice to get someone just taking responsibility. And I think that comes with confidence, actually. And that's what we're seeing with Moyes at the moment. He has got his, he's got his mojo back. 
Brilliant. All right. Well, the uh, weekend's action will conclude on Monday evening when Saints host Liverpool. Saints with manager Raf Hasenhutl back in the dugout after his recent self-isolating, but without goalkeeper Alex McCarthy, who is now tested positive for the dreaded COVID-19. So that's not good. Up against uh, former Saints player Sadio Mane and his chums like Mo Salah, Michael. Yeah, they do like playing a high line, Southampton, and and various speedy forwards have exposed that this season. Son scored four against them for Spurs. Timo Werner obviously isn't having a, a great time with things for Chelsea, but he scored a couple of times against them. And yeah, you do worry about Mane and Salah um, and their speed in behind. So, I mean, Liverpool are slightly struggling on the road at the moment, um, yeah. drawn five of the last six away from home in the league, but I would fancy them to win this. Okay. All right, well, let's get the thoughts of Lee Price of Paddy Power on that game and more next. Happy New Year, listeners. How are you? Oh, me? Well, soon as you asked, I'm actually kind of upset about the League Cup. You see, usually the final falls on my birthday weekend, which means I have the perfect excuse to disregard it entirely. Sadly, this year, the one where I probably won't have anything better on has been delayed until April. You just don't know what you've got until it's gone. Still, with the semi-finals chopped down to one-off matches, the first, and only, legs are worth watching this time around. So let's start with the big derby of most recently built London stadiums, of course. Brentford stole that title from Tottenham this season, but it's an almighty 5-1 to one they take this game too. Tottenham are odds-on favourites to win, while a draw after 90 minutes is 7-2. to two. In the other semi, Man City destroyed one overpromoted club legend this week with their dismantling of Frank Lampard's Chelsea. So it's no surprise they're favourite to see off Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's title contenders. I hope you can hear the quotation marks there. United are priced at 12-5 to to win. That's the kind of shift pattern I like to work. While City are evens. Don't forget Southampton versus Liverpool. I hear you shrill. How could I? Live football is almost all I have left at the minute. That and this much-loved segment. Southampton are an eyebrow tug in 4-1 to one to beat the champions, who are 8-13 to 13 to win that one. That's it for me today, but I'll be back soon with some more numbers for your ear rolls. Until then, farewell. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now. We've got a busy week of podcasts uh, available for your listening pleasure. To wit, uh, the Totally Football League show is out Monday, a little bit later on. Ooh, Daniel, what will they be discussing in that? Tony Pulis got binned by Sheffield Wednesday. They've won two out of two uh, since his departure. That's pretty good. Yes, they have. They've kicked on. And uh, Norwich, Brentford and Swansea look like the the informed teams at the moment. Lovely stuff. Much more of that kind of thing in the Totally Football League show. Tuesday, there's two shows available. There's the Totally Football Show European edition with the latest from La Liga, the Bundesliga, Serie A and Pochettino in Paris and all the hot continental transfer rumours. And also on Tuesday, and far more exotically, the Totally Scottish Football Show in which they'll surely be tackling the extraordinary events in Glasgow on Saturday where Rangers beat Celtic 1-0... Daniel, as you were pointing out, without so much as a shot on target, uh, putting themselves 19 points clear of Celtic, the same Celtic that have won the last nine titles in Scotland. Rangers, who weren't even top two when Gerard took over. Crikey. Stevie G went full rocky. Do you remember when they, they won this last season? He went full rocky at the final whistle. He ran around screaming, this time far more composed, and that's very much the, the new look Rangers. Uh, they've had an extraordinary record, I believe... I'm right in saying that it's their best record, the best start in almost a century. And uh, when does his contract at Rangers run out? The same time as Jurgen Klopp's expires. Yeah, it's interesting though, isn't it? I mean, when you look at the difficulties that Frank Lampard's experiencing, his his success this season, Stephen Gerrard at Rangers, is, uh, well, it's illuminating, isn't it? Yeah, it's the. I mean, he's obviously doing a brilliant job in Scotland, but I think it's the it's the Europa League campaign that will make people sit up and take note a little bit because to to qualify out of the group they did, it was a tough, tough draw, and obviously Celtic finished bottom of their group. So yeah, um, that's the the real plus, I think. Wow, eleven wins out of eleven in the league at Ibrox, only one goal conceded. Uh, this one they won uh, through an own goal uh, from their neighbours. They've got Antwerp in the last 32. Much more chat about the old firm game 
in Tuesday's totally uh, Scottish football show. Benji, uh, another thought on the championship, though? <laughs> Just a very quick one. My, my, um, my next-door neighbour's a Norwich fan, and he gave me a hot tip this weekend, which is Barnsley are really good and are outside shots for promotion, and they are managed by... Valerie Ishmael. Do you remember him? Played about 15 games for Palace at some point. Um, anyway, apparently Valerie Ishmael and Barnsley are ones to watch. Really? Yeah, they, they play they play in inverted commas the right way. Um, and they're on an incredible shoestring budget. They Them and Coventry both try and play really good football, which is, is nice. Well, as I say, all of those uh, exciting topics covered in our various podcasts throughout the week. We'll be back on Thursday with another totally regular edition as we sign off michael cox what's what's been your biggest takeaway from this round of the season what would you leave our listener with they didn't even play this weekend but i just want to congratulate burnley for having scored nine goals in 15 matches and yet still being five points clear with the relegation sign incredible achievement brilliant and now under new ownership of course yeah that could be interesting actually i mean Mm. If, if there's more demands upon Dyche to maybe change his style of football and if he brings in attacking players, it'll be interesting to see how he will adapt because he's one of those managers who always says, I will play better football if I have better players. Well, we might be about to find out. Wow. It is a brave new world, a brave new year and same old Totally Football show. We'll be back then on Thursday and at various times in between, listener. So do hope you'll join us for that. For now, it's many, many thanks to Michael, to Benji, and to Daniel and producer Charlie. And you, listener, Happy New Year once again, and we'll catch up with you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual places, or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.